0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which publishes loads of great left-wing titles perfect for dig listeners like you. One of the best ways you can support and sustain Haymarket's publishing is by becoming a member of a Haymarket book club. As a book club member, your monthly subscription helps Haymarket continue to publish books for changing the world, and you receive one or more books per month delivered straight to your door, as well as a standing 50% discount off all titles on the Haymarket website. Book club members receive as many as 50 books per year, and book club subscriptions begin at just $10 a month. Learn more about Haymarket's book clubs and join hundreds of subscribers helping to ensure the future of radical publishing at haymarketbooks.org. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. In recent decades, the passage of Labor Day has usually marked an opportunity to assess just how much worse things have become for the American labor movement than they were the year before. But in 2023, there's legitimately, if not uniformly, good news on the union front. The last year has seen an explosion in working class militancy and creativity across the United States. Union reform efforts, long supported by left-wing groups like Labor Notes, to remake unions into more democratic, militant tribunes of the entire working class have recently paid off, with new leadership in the Teamsters and the UAW taking their unions to the edge of massive national strikes. Strikes in Hollywood have grabbed national attention and become a referendum on corporate greed, as exemplified by the studio heads. Workers have undertaken new experiments in organizing, whether through independent unions at companies like Amazon and Trader Joe's, creating new models of organizing at companies like Starbucks, or building new kinds of organizations to support new organizing like the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, or EWOC. And really, just the vibe across the country is pro-union. Opinion polls repeatedly show overwhelming support for unions. Growing numbers of workers across industries see unionization as the solution to their problems at work. Given the incredible power organized labor is capable of wielding, and the necessity of rebuilding unions for progressive and left politics as a whole, this is very good news. But we shouldn't get too carried away with how rosy the picture is things only seem this good in part because they've been so bad for so long. Many unions remain moribund institutions, unwilling or unable to pursue more aggressive organizing strategies. And the overall percentage of workers who belong to a union remains just above 10% and has been on a slow but almost uniformly steady decline for the entirety of the 21st century. And yet, there's still good reason to be hopeful. This episode is a wide-ranging and really important discussion, chronicling the most important labor struggles of recent years, guest hosted by Jacobin editor Micah Utrecht, with Jacobin staff writer Alex Press, and Rutgers University labor scholar Eric Blanc. Oh, and I would be remiss not to mention the fact that this entire podcast exists only because listeners like you support the podcast at Patreon.com/slash/TheDig. I know it's so easy to tune out requests like this. I have shamefully ignored such requests myself over the years. That's why I rewrite this pitch for your support each and every episode to try to break through to communicate directly to you my listener, listening to me right now through your earbuds. You might ask yourself, does me contributing to the dig really even matter? Yes, it really does. This podcast exists and does everything that we do because roughly 2,000 listeners, just 2,000 of you, support us at Patreon. And that is, I'd estimate, 3% or less of regular dig listeners, three percent or less of you contribute, and so if you can't afford to contribute but you haven't done so yet, please do your part and help keep this podcast free for everyone to listen to, regardless of their ability to pay. We have books, tote bags, and mugs to send you. That's p a t r e o n dot com slash the dig. Plus, there's our weekly newsletter which supporters on Patreon get by email, but which all of you can read at thedigradio.com. We're starting this new thing. We will be allowing supporters on Patreon to ask Dig guests follow-up questions as part of our weekly newsletter. That is pretty exciting and only available to you if you support us at patreon.com slash thedig. Contribute now and keep the conversation going with our amazing, incredible wonderful, very good, smart guests. Okay. Alex Press is a staff writer at Jacobin who has covered the American labor movement very closely for years, often reporting on the ground about major and minor strikes and organizing drives. She has recently written in-depth pieces about organizing drives, strikes, and reform efforts at Amazon, Starbucks, the Hollywood Writers and Actors, UPS and Teamsters, the United Auto Workers, Trader Joe's, the Wabtec train manufacturing worker strike in Pennsylvania, a Brooklyn pizza restaurant, and and much more. Eric Blanc is an assistant professor of labor studies at Rutgers University. He's the author of Red State Revolt, The Teacher's Strike Wave in Working Class Politics, and is currently at work on We Are the Union, How Worker-to-Worker Organizing Can Transform America. Eric's forthcoming book is based on hundreds of interviews with workers in recent organizing drives, asking what it will take to unionize at the scale that workers need. Eric makes the case for worker-to-worker unionism, which builds off the best elements of traditional organizing by expanding workers' scope of responsibility to include key tasks usually reserved for paid, full-time staffers so as to create an organizing model that is cheaper and capable of scaling up against corporate America.
1: And Eric, welcome to The Dig.
2: Thanks for having us.
3: Great to be here.
1: Let's start with the most basic question, the question that leftists are constantly asking all the time. What is the state of the American labor movement today?
2: Yeah, big question. And I think I would start with the thing that gets the most attention, right, which is the strikes that are happening or almost happening this year. So according to the Cornell ILR School Labor Action Tracker, which is sort of the newest tool that I think most accurately tracks strikes in the United States, there have been more than 200 strikes in the U.S. in 2023 so far, and those involved more than 320,000 workers. So that is a significant increase over previous years in recent memory. So in 2021, there were only 116 strikes with 27,000 workers. So we're talking about 10 times as many workers striking. And obviously the biggest ones there are the, you know, the sag after strike because that union consists of 160,000 performers. So that really juices the numbers. You know, UPS workers almost struck. They got very close and really were seriously preparing to do so. That would have been 340,000 workers. And then the other, you know, thing to keep on the horizon as far as this year is that it looks like the United Auto Workers are barreling toward a strike in September, and that's 160,000 people. And so that those are all very significant, right? Because it's not just numbers, but also what part of the economy are these workers in? Um, this is a lot of private sector workers. These are workers both in the kind of core industrial sectors, you know, UPS and UAW auto workers, as well as all kinds of other workers, right? I mean, we've seen Thousands of Starbucks workers go on strike. So it's across the economy, right? So I think that's significant because it's not only a matter of, you know, kind of spreads and inspires, but it's also not where traditionally we would see kind of in recent years people going on the offensive, which, you know, if we think back to, you know, Eric's writing on this on the teacher's strikes of recent years, you know, that's public sector workers. Workers are often going on the offensive here. So some of these strikes are about clawing back concessions that they previously gave up years in the past that were less favorable to labor and favorable, meaning that the tight labor market we've had kind of in the latter part of the pandemic has really kind of created a atmosphere where I would say workers feel the wind is at their backs um, and that they can kind of fight for more rather than just defending what they have. And I'm going to quote at length a worker who I spoke to who's at the core of the Trader Joe's Independent Union, the Trader Joe's United Union, Tony Falco says, and he's a worker at Trader Joe's, people like myself are tired of being undervalued. A job is either worth something or it's not. I believe ours is worth something because people are getting wealthy off of our work. We should all be compensated fairly for it. It shouldn't be a struggle to live. It shouldn't be paycheck to paycheck. It shouldn't be a fight to get benefits. There shouldn't be punishment for getting sick. There's been a break in the mass brainwashing in which we're all meant to just suffer and work and be exploited. There's a moment where you think, maybe not. What we're doing is not without risk, but I don't feel scared. I'm feeling, and I hope other workers are feeling, the empowerment that we've yet to see the results of. I feel a sense of it already, and I can find something else if need be. That's part of where the lack of fear comes from. Being underpaid, I can get that elsewhere if I have to. And I think that kind of sums up you know, what the context for the state of labor today, which is the pandemic put workers in such a dire position where they felt that they had to risk their lives and their health of their family this is the result of that.
3: I think, in addition to the strikes, one of the most exciting stories of the last really year plus is the emergence of new organizing, oftentimes worker led, oftentimes led by young radicals. So, we are seeing a significant number of new workers joining unions. And in large part, that's because workers themselves are taking the lead on these drives. It's not actually the case that most unions have made a turn towards new organizing. In fact, the big story, I think, of the last year and a half and longer is the sheer number and quality of union wins, despite the relative inertia of most national unions. And so it's not just the quantity, but the quality. You've seen wins, obviously, at Starbucks and Amazon. But then maybe most spectacularly, is there's a dramatic unionization wave over all of higher ed just earlier this week, 88% of students, graduate student workers at Duke voted for a union. So this is the first sort of breach of the South in the higher ed- education wave. But you've seen other waves of unionization, which is new in smaller chains, unlike Starbucks, which is you know, a massive employer. Workers in some of the smaller chains where they have an ability to organize all of the workers have won. Colectivo, um, Intelligentsia, Seven Stars, Burgerville. Workers are not just fighting and winning union elections, but they're winning first contracts. And so this poses the possibility of this organizing wave spreading. But I think ultimately there's going to be a need for a far more resource being put towards new organizing that's currently happening. And I think that we don't know how long this moment will last. We should say pretty starkly that this is the best moment for new organizing since the 1940s. You have an extremely tight labor market. You have the best NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, Since certainly 1937, just today, a new very important ruling making it easier to unionize came out. You have a generation of young workers who want to unionize. And whether this moment is going to be seized or not is still an open question. And that's, I think, one of the things we should talk through.
1: You're both noting some of the positive aspects of the state of the labor movement today, with a newfound willingness on the part of many workers to go on strike and a number of exciting new organizing campaigns. It's worth noting, though, that according to most of the traditional metrics we use to measure labor's power, like percentage of the total workforce, union numbers remain quite low. For all the excitement in the air at the moment, labor remains extremely weak.
2: Yeah, I just want to say that it's why I ended on that Tony Cafalco quote is there is a subjective factor here and it's born of desperation. Right. I think people really it's like they don't read the second part of the headline um, when they think about what's going on here, which is like, yes, there's exciting momentum and people are no longer as afraid of being fired or otherwise kind of putting themselves at risk by doing new organizing or staying out on strike. But again, this was born of people during the pandemic having to work and risk their health and being kept in the dark about COVID among their coworkers, you know, people's family members getting COVID from them and dying. I mean, this, and workers had to rely on one another, which I think everyone who kind of is familiar with how unions work knew this would lead to new organizing because you can't put that back in the bottle once workers realize that they can only rely on each other and that there's very clear class lines between them and their boss. Um, But again, that is born of desperation and death. Like this is a very early stage kind of response to bottoming out. And I completely agree with Eric about we don't know how far it will go or whether it will be seized. There are new contracts being won, but at other places that's not happening. You know, Starbucks workers have not won any contracts. Trader Joe's that I mentioned has no, you know, the corporation seems to have no intention of settling a contract. Amazon, no idea about how you get a contract we as a generation are almost going through the stages of a new union campaign together, where people are excited and they realize how to win a union campaign, but then the next step is how do you get a contract? And I think that's an open question that generally relies on the state of the broader labor movement strength to force that, as well as the internal organization of those workers to force their employer to agree to a first contract. And so that is very much still an open question.
3: I think that's true. And it's also the case that if we compare the organizing at Starbucks or Amazon to their equivalents in the 30s, which was auto steel, you know, those drives took years and decades. And so I think the timeline through which we're assessing the current drives underway is really important because then otherwise it could be easy to downplay their significance in the short term. And, and, you know, frankly, I think a lot of union leaders maybe behind the scenes are saying that, you know, this is going to be a flash in the pan and there's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy dynamic at play there. Because if you think what's going on right now is a flash in the pan, as opposed to uh, demonstrating the potential for something bigger, then you're not going to go all in. You're not going to try to seize the moment. You're not going to put real resources to new organizing. And so there's other metrics we can use to try to assess how deep the potential is and how deep the anger is and, and, and also how many workers want to unionize. So one thing I did was I just looked at Google Trends. You know, anybody can go do this. And you can look at search queries for how do I form a union? And in 22, in 2022, it just dramatically explodes. You know, it's just like flatline, flatline, 2022 goes way up. Similarly, you can look at the amount of media attention being placed on unions and starting in late 2021, but particularly in 2022, it just explodes. Obviously, these on their own aren't enough to turn around things for the labor movement, but they do give you a sense of what's going on beneath the surface. And it's hard for me to imagine a real labor explosion without there being hype. Sometimes there's a criticism of what's going on right now. There's too much hype on labor. It's just hype. It's a lot of smoke and no substance. But actually, you do need to hype it up a lot because you need millions and millions of workers to see that they can form a union, to watch other workers forming a union. The hype piece is important if we're going to organize at scale. And so there is a dynamic there between the attention and the type of things that we're seeing getting headlines and the potentiality for union drives that are organizing millions of workers and not just hundreds of thousands.
1: The hype point makes me think of your recent piece, Alex, about union organizing at Trader Joe's. You open with an anecdote from a worker, Meg Yosef, who is watching the sitcom Superstore with her wife, and there's a union drive plotline in the show. And she says to her wife, we could do that. And then they did. So that hype aspect seems critical to the spreading of the idea throughout the culture that unionization is the solution to workers' problems.
2: Yeah, I mean, I love that story by that worker, Meg Yosef, at Trader Joe's, who is the comms director now for Trader Joe's United, uh, because it's perfect, right? I mean, it is true that, like, there is a delicate balance here as far as hype and reality. These these are different types of things as far as the type of writing or media coverage. But it's absolutely the case that, you know, the average person in the United States has no experience with a union anymore. And probably at this point, you know, often the workers I speak to, even their parents have no experience with a union and so there is this this sort of blockage, right? Um, as far as how do you get your answer out to the millions? As far as the best tool for combating, you know, the danger and inequality and so on that plague the American working class, and it's why it's part of why Starbucks was so significant because this is a type of workplace that previously had fast food and low-wage kind of retail and food sector, very little new organizing and union representation, except for, you know, some places that are repped by, say, Unite Here or something, some restaurants. And all of a sudden, these were workers that millennials could relate to, that knew or were themselves working at Starbucks. And all of a sudden, this thing that couldn't be done was being done. And it was very clear. I mean, Eric mentioned the other independent coffee shops that organized the different Restaurants and smaller workplaces. You know, we're here in Brooklyn, Barbancino, a pizza place in Crown Heights, unionized with Workers United, the union that is representing Starbucks workers as well. And so this has a real knock on effect, right? Because how do you convince someone to do something if they've never seen evidence both that it can be done or that it's worth doing? And Starbucks just immediately kind of raise that to a level that, say, people like me and you and Eric might not necessarily be able to reach otherwise, right? They were reading about Starbucks.
3: I think it goes even deeper. I think most workers just assume that jobs in this country are either union or not union. That's still the overarching misconception, is that you're either in a union job or not. And it, and it hasn't you know yet breached the minds of most people still that unions are formed by workers and it's not there aren't any inherently unorganizable workplaces and so one one anecdote i think that alex you've mentioned before and it's come up in a lot of the interviews i've been doing is just for example the the sheer number of workers who've decided to unionize their workplace because they were watching a twitch stream with hassan right which i don't understand twitch i don't really exactly understand what goes on but you have a lot of people all of a sudden getting excited about labor and then deciding that because they did it there, I can do it here. And that is such a powerful idea. And it's essentially the type of idea that has to spread for labor to turn things around.
1: And that's a reference to Hassan Piker, one of the most popular leftist streamers in the country. So let's talk about the Biden administration. What is you all's assessment of the Biden administration stance towards labor? He has pitched himself as The most pro-labor president in history, which is an exaggeration to be sure. But despite a number of missteps and missed opportunities, some of which we will get into later, his presidency does seem to have been a pleasant surprise in some ways for the labor movement, especially given his history. So is this true? And if so, what do you chalk this up to?
3: I think overall, the record of the Biden administration is very mixed. To be honest, our expectations are so low for understandable reasons in establishment Democrats that he's far exceeded certainly my expectations and I think most other folks on the left and and even in the labor movement. So that's positive. I, I think generally speaking, the labor policies of the Biden administration have been the most significant, most progressive part of the administration and what otherwise has been an administration that has not very consistently sided with workers and oftentimes has taken stances against them. So to give some examples of that, the best example of Biden doing the wrong thing was his stance on the potential railway workers strike in which he invoked, you know, very anti-democratic aspects of us labor law to essentially force rail workers to not strike. They ended up winning their demands for sick pay, but that was more because of pressure from below and from politicians like AOC and Bernie than it was to the Biden administration. The big story though on Biden and labor really is that he did two crucial things that have made it a lot easier to organize. The first is the Biden administration has run a very hot economy. And so that has created a tight labor market, which is just, we can't underestimate how important that's been for new organizing. So many workers I talk to say, well, you know, I felt like I could take the risk of organizing because if I get fired from this job, I can just go get another job similar to that. And that, as a background condition, particularly for low-wage workers, can't be underestimated. Just over and over over again, we see workers taking risks that they wouldn't otherwise do if there was higher un- unemployment. And then the second thing is the NLRB. It's, this is the best National Labor Relations Board we've had since 1937 when the left sort of started getting purged from it. Jennifer Abruzzo is amazingly militant, really. I, it's hard to use another word. She's going all out, has basically done more than anybody even thought was possible to use the NLRB to carve out some more space for workers to act on the federally recognized right to unionize, but which has been so decayed over recent years that it's oftentimes a right that's just on paper. So to give two examples of what that looks like, what it means to have a good NLRB. The first is I don't think we would have a national Starbucks campaign if it wasn't for this NLRB, because this NLRB, un- unlike past Republican NLRBs, um, voted with the workers to allow for there to be store-by-store elections in Buffalo and other cities across the country. And so what that meant is that there was space for the union to be able to start winning votes at stores and to have the thing go can contagious and to get viral in a way that just wouldn't have been possible if they had to win on a citywide level. A drive of Starbucks in New York, actually in the early 2000s, was basically quashed by the NLRB when it sided with the company against the workers. So I don't think you'd have Starbucks, at least in the way it looks right now in such a massive way, without this NLRB. And then similarly, with the Amazon campaign, one of the crucial turning points in their organizing campaign at JFK 8 was the NLRB helped pressure to force the company to allow the workers to be able to organize out of their break room, which legitimized the effort in what had otherwise been a very scrappy and remained a very scrappy organizing drive. And it gave them the space to be able to talk to their coworkers that proved essential. And so these two sort of small examples give you a sense of the possibility for the state to intervene on the side of labor in a way that we can kind of get a glimpse of. It happened in the 1930s, it's happening to a Partial extent today, despite the fact that the NLRB is very underfunded and still doesn't have enough enforcement mechanisms. But oftentimes liberals and progressives say, "Well, the reason to hold your nose and vote for the Democrats and you know for president is who they're going to appoint to the Supreme Court." That might be true, but I think it's much more the case that that's the case for uh, the NLRB, like who is going to get appointed to the next NLRB, depending on who wins the 2024 elections, and be very consequential for whether this labor uptick becomes an upsurge or whether it continues or whether it gets quashed by a Republican administration.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I certainly agree, especially about Abruzzo. You know, it is pretty remarkable the, the clarity she has brought to the NLRB. She's only doing what it's tasked with doing, and yet no one has done that in 100 years, um, right? She's just, you know, following the rule of the law here. That said, I think the remarkable kind of standards that Abruzzo has been helping usher in kind of also point to the puzzle that we remain in that we kind of talked about earlier. Even the most aggressive militant NLRB is still both underfunded and also just a slower process than workers need, right? So we see at Starbucks, workers are, you know, constantly being fired and otherwise the company is violating labor law. And yet there's nothing the NLRB can really do to stop that, right? There's very little as far as monetary and financial penalties for a company that could come through the NLRB, no matter how much they're riding roughshod over the laws. Similarly, the timeline for reinstating fired workers and things like that. You know, these workers say at Amazon, we're watching this play out as far as we have this NLRB that intervened in a very positive way that Eric talked about early on. And yet the process is that Amazon can appeal every decision and then appeal again, and then appeal again. And we're talking about people's lives here. This is several years that it will take um, to wend your way through the courts, right? I mean, I just wrote about Trader Joe's and it's a similar thing, right? Every single very obvious violation of labor law then takes several months to be ruled on. And then the company appeals. And so there's hearings scheduled for October. I mean, this is really not a timeline that is realistic for workers, which just goes to emphasize that we need the other piece, right? Well, how do we actually have workers in motion themselves to enforce these things? right? You cannot win a contract at Amazon relying on the NLRB to tell amazon to to bargain with you. That's never going to happen right and so I think that is a really important thing to emphasize as far as as far as assessing the past few years I mean of course, i would just I would echo that the railroad worker strike catastrophe was was really a, a shameful thing that rightly is going to be a shadowing kind of legacy for the Biden administration's policy on labor. And there are other things too. I mean, you know, OSHA has not been as gung-ho and aggressive on heat standards for indoor and outdoor workers. Similarly, you know, there's been a question about misclassification. You know, the, I think the Biden administration could be a lot more aggressive about classifying workers correctly so that they're not being considered independent contractors and denied their basic rights um, as workers. So there's always room for improvement. And I think it's kind of a helpful, clarifying moment for people as far as what you can and can't rely on, whether elected officials or the courts to do for you versus what you must do yourself.
3: I agree with that. and I would go even further on the Biden question. One of the things that unions have been demanding of Biden, or at least more of the militant unions that he hasn't done, has been to take a very forthright Proactive stand against the union busting that's happening. And so it's not enough just to say, you know, I'm in support of unions. But the real thing that Biden could do if he were genuinely interested in trying to help Trader Joe's, Starbucks, Amazon workers get a contract would be to tell Howard Schultz, I'm inviting you, CEO of Starbucks or whoever the CEOs of the other companies are, I'm inviting you to the White House and we're going to come hammer out a contract. Past presidents have done that. And Biden has not used his bully pulpit to denounce the union busting. He has not used his policy powers to try to force some of these companies to the table. And so that underscores, again, what you're saying, Alex, that, yeah, there's no world in which you're going to win first contracts by depending on the law and the process. It can help partially, but ultimately it's going to be up to the bottom up organizing to win that piece.
2: The last thing I would add here is that because of these constraints at the federal level, whether we ascribe them to, you know, the the GOP intransigence, say, on not confirming Julie Sue as Department of Labor head, or we ascribe it to, you know, the Democrats actually generally being without a backbone, which I think we totally could ascribe it to, you know, it means that at the state and local level is kind of where these experiments are playing out. And in part, that's a reflection of the fact that unions in the United States are particularly strong in cities rather than rural areas for the most part. And so we see these experiments going on, whether in New York City or Chicago, Los Angeles. That is sort of where ambitious at the legislative level, ambitious things are being tried, whether we're talking about, you know, a fight that's going on right now about in California getting getting workers who are on strike access to unemployment, whether it's uh, Chicago electing Brandon Johnson as a mayor, you know, backed by the CTU and a CTU former teacher himself. Or it's, you know, New York's various coalitions that are pushing, whether it's the state is pushing a warehouse standard that would technically, though not explicitly, target Amazon's warehouse quotas that, you know, drive workers into exhaustion and that are famous for the the idea that they have no time to pee. You know, that those things are being pushed at the city and state levels. Um, Minnesota has a similar bill that is also part of the piece like we can't just think about biden we also think about what are people's and unions answers to those constraints and i think the interesting stuff is you know unfortunately because it'd be great if it were federal but instead is being tried out and tested out at the smaller levels
3: let's
1: get into some of the big fights of the recent months and the past year perhaps the biggest has already been mentioned was at ups which narrowly averted a strike recently. Alex, you wrote a long profile of the Teamsters Union uh, in the lead-up to the vote to strike, as well as the new leadership of that union, Sean O'Brien. Could you talk a little bit about the background of what's gone on within the Teamsters Union, why the, that strike in particular uh, would have been so important and why the UPS contract in general is so important and then where things go from here?
2: Yeah. I mean, lots of things. I'll try not to ramble too long. So Sean O'Brien came to power, was elected to leadership of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters because of the UPS contract debacle that happened during the last round of the the last contract. So during that contract negotiation, O'Brien was on the negotiating team. He was the lead negotiator against UPS. And, you know, the importance of this contract really can't be overstated. It is the largest private sector contract in the United States. 350,000 people are covered under it. And these are also workers that are sort of central for the U.S. economy, right? When, when there was a risk of a strike, you know, the estimates were this is going to 6% of U.S. GDP moves through UPS trucks, right? So this is, these are really kind of workers with leverage, um, as we often say in the labor movement. And so negotiating this contract last round, you know, it was the union was headed by Jimmy Hoffa's son. And that guy forced through a contract that was lacking. Um, So it was very unusual in that, you know, the Teamsters, because they were kind of led by this regime that has long been in power, the Hoffa legacy, they rarely have workers at this level capable of voting down a contract like the UPS contract. But that's what they did the last round. The majority of the votes were against ratifying this contract. And in large part, the issue the workers had with it was it introduced a new tier of drivers. So these would be UPS drivers who are doing the same work as as other UPS drivers. But by dint of when they were hired, they would get worse benefits and worse pay. Um, And so this was really anathema for the workers because they knew this would lead to resentment and was just unfair. So it's part of why it's a big reason why they voted that down. But Hoffa Jr., forced it through using an arcane clause in the in the Teamsters Constitution. Um, and that was pretty much the beginning of the end of him and his sort of chosen successors and, and his allies. Sean O'Brien broke with him over this. He you know he got kicked off the bargaining com- team um, over his criticisms of this and then announced he would run. And so he of course vowed to get the strongest contract that UPS workers have ever gotten. And I would say he did. And so that is sort of the context for this fight. And it's, re- it's really a sign of how much things have changed that there are people who are very still critical of what was won. You know, part-timers did not get the amount of money that they went in wanting. Part-timers are paid much less than UPS drivers, and they constitute the majority of the membership. In past contract fights, very little attention and priority was given to them. Um, and in this fight, it was really the issue that led to a near strike was that UPS was not moving on the issue of part-time pay. And so the fact that people are saying we actually could have won more and we think we were well-placed to win a strike, the piece I wrote, Micah, that you mentioned, went into what those preparations looked like. And they were going on for, you know, almost a year, getting workers ready at the at the local levels to to win a strike, which is incredibly difficult. You know, I think it really does speak to raised expectations and a willingness to fight.
3: To me, it's very indicative of the moment we're in that folks... At UPS, one, a good contract, a very good contract, I think. And nevertheless, there is a credible case that could be made and that a lot of rank and filers and others have made that a strike still might have been possible and necessary. Not so much, I don't think, to win a dramatically better contract, but in part because of the demonstration effect that that would have had for working class people all across the country. So it really depends on how you're looking at the role of unions if the role of unions is just limited to winning better contracts, obviously that's really important, or whether you tie that fight for winning better conditions to a broader class project in which you're really trying to inspire other workers and organize other workers, particularly at Amazon, but not just. And there is something about a strike as opposed to just a contract campaign that has that galvanizing effect. And it's something going ahead as other unions are assessing whether to strike or just to have a strike threat and win a good contract. That is a really critical and and very tough dilemma. I don't think there's easy answers, and I don't think we should say always strike. But there is something about this moment that can go much further than I think even some of the best trade unionists of the last decades have
1: imagined. Part of this gets at the limitations of trade unions in a capitalist society, right? I mean, the remit of a labor leader like Sean O'Brien is principally to uh, win the best contract that he can For the Teamsters members. And it's very difficult for even left minded, progressive minded trade unionists to use their union as a battering ram for the entire class, especially around something like a contract negotiation. Uh, And especially when, in the case of O'Brien, it was clear that the union had really won a not perfect, but extremely strong contract for. UPS workers, and it's 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 hard not to think about what could have come out of a UPS strike if it could have had a catalytic effect on the entire American working class, given that when UPS workers go on strike, that means that there are picket lines in every zip code in the United States, that uh, the last time the Teamsters went on strike in 1997 is everywhere from major cities to far-flung rural areas and everywhere in between that there were workers wearing the UPS brown out on the picket line it's tough to think about the potential for what could have been accomplished had that strike happened and had a large number of other american workers taken notice and uh, gone and done likewise in their own workplaces um, especially given that one of the main tasks for the teamsters right now is not just was not just to win a new and strong contract at UPS but to organize the other unorganized sectors of the logistics industry, such as FedEx and uh, especially uh, Amazon. So, uh, Alex, can you talk about that aspect of uh, how the the Teamsters go from here to trying to accomplish uh, the task of organizing the unorganized sectors of logistics?
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the most basic way to explain this is that if you're a rank-and-file Teamster, you're a UPS driver who is trying to help organize Amazon workers, whether drivers or warehouse workers, which is pretty much what is happening right now. The, the, you know, the Teamsters have an Amazon division and a national campaign to start building ties with Amazon workers and sort of seed union campaigns and otherwise organizing. And you know if you go up to an Amazon worker with a contract in your hand that is very good, and you say, this is what we have with the union, that is a much stronger argument than going with a contract that has tiers and part-timers are paid less than they even make at Amazon in some cases. That's not going to convince anyone that unions have value, right? On the most basic, vulgar, nuts and bolts, bread and butter question, this helps, right? But you're right that, I mean, the picket line is a place where those workers actually meet and they actually see, again, this question of, Not just that you can strike or that you can unionize, but actually you can win stuff by doing things that your boss said you couldn't do, right? Which is uh, basically what a strike is. And so that demonstrating power certainly would have been strong and also would have just significantly helped build the ties between these unorganized workers and the organized workers and the Teamsters. That said, I think going forward, this is what we'll see is that the Teamsters have been very actively backing both like at the at the shop floor level Amazon workers were organizing as well as legislatively pushing to either attach strings to new Amazon projects or stop Amazon from building certain things you know the Teamsters have been supporting bills that that help Amazon workers. So I think we'll just keep seeing more of that. I don't know. It's certainly the case that a successful strike would have helped in this effort, but I don't think it really changes things now. It just means that the contract is much stronger, which makes a more compelling case for organizing.
1: The Coalition of Reform Forces in the Teamsters included the organization Teamsters for a Democratic Union, which is an internal union reform group very much in the vein of Labor Notes, which is a group that we're going to discuss more in detail in a minute. TDU played an absolutely central role in the reform efforts within the Teamsters in the 1990s that led to the election of Teamsters President Ron Kerry, who then took UPS workers out on strike in 1997, the last time that UPS Teamsters went on strike. TDU has also played a key role in the Sean O'Brien administration, but O'Brien himself is not a member of TDU. This is in contrast to what's happened within the United Auto Workers, another reunion that you wrote a long profile of, Alex. You traveled to Detroit to cover the new UAW under reform leadership. Their new reformer president, Sean Fain, is a member of a reform caucus dedicated to democratic militant unionism and seems to be bringing that vision to the current contract negotiations with the big three automakers. Talk about the transition that has happened within the UAW under President Sean Fain.
2: Yeah, I think I often find myself drawing a contrast and, and comparison between these two kind of reform wins. So in the UAW, you know, they had corruption scandals that I think rival, you know, the Hoffa regime as far as, you know, they, they almost became comical. So previous union leaders in the UAW part of a caucus that famously Walter Ruther, the most famous UAW president, was a part of, the administration caucus. So it was sort of a one-party rule within the UAW up until these past couple of years. The administration caucus more or less picked who would lead, the elections were not free and fair, and then they kind of used their positions to kind of as fiefdoms, right, to, to take union, do money, For corrupt purposes. I mean, there was this New York Times article about some of the stuff they were doing that, you know, this federal investigation found that senior officials had embezzled millions of dollars from union members. This is their dues money, right? It's it's basically sacred, um, that money. And instead, it was being spent on luxuries, golf outings, extended stays at a Palm Springs villa. According to the Times, union officials acquired enough golf bags, sunglasses, shirts, and fashion shorts on these trips that they used a semi truck to ship the items home to Michigan. So this was really egregious. About a dozen UAW leaders served prison time, including several former presidents of the UAW. Um, and part of kind of untangling this corruption involved a um, you know, federal body recommending that the union hold a referendum to see if they would have direct elections for leadership rather than this um, kind of arcane complex system they were using prior that was easily manipulated by the current leadership. And the members voted that they wanted direct elections. That referendum won and Sean Fain and the fellow reformers that won elected positions are the result. So they're members of the uh, Unite All Workers for Democracy, UAWD, which is the first caucus in the UAW to not be the administration caucus, right? Now you have several parties going on in the in the union. And every leadership slot that they ran in, that they contested, they won. And so there's very few administration caucus people in leadership now. And it sort of is a sea change of sorts. I mean, it's really shocking. And to draw the comparison with the Teamsters, you know, when I was in Detroit, there was this moment where Sean Fain, who is a UAWD member, a member of this reform caucus, came to the the caucus's room that they were using kind of as a headquarters during the convention in the hotel complex. And, you know, he teared up saying he was so proud to be a member of this caucus. Right. There was no sense that. Thanks. This was an alliance, and now I won. And goodbye. And here's what I'm gonna do. Instead, it was a real conversation of like, what should we do? And can you support me on this? And can, and what do you guys think of this? That I was. It was really shocking because again, O'Brien has always been very clear. By contrast, that you know he was a he was a Hoffa junior depu- deputy who broke because he was sick of sellout contracts, and he is a militant. He ha- can lead strikes. But he is not a socialist, he is not a member of the Reform Caucus, and in fact, historically he had a lot of fights with TDU, and so it's an alliance, right? They need each other, and I think that's very true. But that is separate than just being of the Reform Caucus, because it gets to the point of what does it look like to be a politically left-wing kind of minded or progressive union leader, and I think we may see more of what that could look like and the the limitations that may very well exist still for a Sean Fein um, we're already seeing it, I think, in the lead up to the possible strike at the big three automakers, which would be September 14th is when their contract expires. You know, there's an emphasis on the entire working class. There's an emphasis on, you know, something near and dear to my heart, which is shorter work weeks. You know, Sean Fein seems to really mean it when he talks about fighting for broader things that are maybe hard to convince some of his members of, but that is the role of leadership. And so I think there is a sense of a kind of, what can we use a union to do? And wouldn't it be the place to raise these broader demands? And I think Sean is, is doing that experiment in a very serious way.
1: Alex, there are many moments in your UAW profile where members of the administration caucus clearly have no conception of what a robustly democratic union would look like, precisely because robust internal deliberation has been so conspicuously absent from the union for so many decades. That seems to be a very tough context for a reformer like Sean Fain to operate within.
2: Yeah, I mean, to, to sound kind of trite, it's, you know, democracy is a muscle, right? And part of the tragedy of union corruption, historically and in more recent years, is that not only is it a betrayal of the workers that you're meant to represent, but also limits what is even possible and what workers even imagine is possible, right? If the UAW or, say, the Teamsters historically they'll strike but it's handed down as okay you just do this because we're telling you to do this as your leader and we're not going to tell you what's going on in negotiations it's a complete secret but we're telling you that today instead of going to work you're going on the picket line there's no initiative there's no sense that like people are deliberative at all and it really it puts workers in the back seat right if if the question is 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 sort of building a project of the working class that like takes advantage of workers' initiative and knowledge to actually build and win things. You know, a union that instead just tells them what to do, just like a boss does, you know, is really really a tragedy. And I think we're seeing, you know, what it looks like to try to undo that sort of um, loss of that muscle. Because when we're seeing Sean Fain, you know, he's been doing live streams on Facebook and otherwise updates about those negotiations that are happening at the bargaining table in Detroit right now. And, you know, he said in his first address where he was laying out what he what the union was going to the table with as far as their proposals, he said that even when he was on the Stellantis negotiating team nationally, even he was not allowed to know really what was going on. Um, it was just the president um, and secretary treasurer who would know what was happening and everything else was secret. Um, now there's a sense that, like, look, if we're going to win something that you guys need and that you want, we're going to have to all do it together, um, which I think is just a realistic assessment of how they could possibly win a strong contract. But it also reflects, you know, this broader vision that you want to undo things, you want to actually use a union to build working class power, not just kind of use workers as as like totems or symbols to be rolled out by the leadership.
3: I would add a few things on the UAW. One is that it's different to win the national leadership, and to win all of the leaderships of a union, because Part of the tricky thing is that even if you're running the national union apparatus, actually a lot of the power and resources is still at a local and regional level. That's that's true in the UAW, but it's really true in most unions. The labor movement in the U.S. is extremely decentralized. So one of the things just to watch going ahead is the tensions between having a militant national leadership and oftentimes structures from the old regime are very much intact. And so how they navigate that is, to me, one of the big tricky things uh, looking forward. The second piece worth underscoring is, you know, it's not just auto workers in the UAW anymore. The majority majority of workers are blue collar manufacturing auto. But one of the new dynamics has been organizing in higher ed. And there's been a tremendous wave of graduate student unionizing in recent years. And I don't think we should exaggerate the extent to which that cohort pushed the reformers over the top, but it was a razor thin victory. You know, we're talking like a relative handful of votes. So the fact that there was some um, graduate student effort helped the reformers win. So there was a coalition of rank and file auto workers with um, graduate student workers. And that's important because the Republicans often like to counterpose Uh, professional college-educated workers to blue-collar workers, and even some on the left do that. And this shows actually there's a lot of power when you get those folks to work on the same side. And the graduate student workers played an important role in the capacity and organizing building that led to the reformers winning. And then the last thing I would just say is there's a big point about the UAW, which is this, again, I think shows that it's very hard to imagine organizing the unorganized, as Alex has uh, talked about, in the absence of reforming existing unions, because you're not going to get workers excited about joining unions unless the unions look really different than what the old UAW looked like. And so there's a broader pattern. And the UAW isn't the first. you know One of the most dynamic unions in the country right now is the News Guild, which similarly uh, was reformed from the bottom up when a, an organizer from the LA Times who unionized uh, the LA Times, John Schluss, ran against the incumbency, beat the old leadership, and really from the bottom up has been transforming the union into a powerhouse of new organizing and media. So I think that that type of example shows really the potentiality for the UAW on a much larger scale to turn things around in auto and manufacturing more generally.
1: Alex, there's a moment in your UAW profile where you're talking about the union's expansion of higher education organizing. Eric just mentioned that some, including some on the left, draw hard lines between blue-collar work like auto work and white-collar work that graduate workers do and think that maybe there's an unbridgeable gap between those two different kinds of workforces. But you quote a blue-collar UAW member who says, As an auto worker in manufacturing, when I found out that we have grad students, I was shocked. But then I also thought, why have we never talked to these dudes? You hear the words Harvard graduate, and it's like, Oh my God, these are the most highly educated people in the world. We should be tapping into that resource. Then you meet them, and they have a wealth of knowledge, and they've been able to help us to try to organize ourselves. So, if this anecdote is indicative, blue collar trade unionists are far from alienated from the new influx of highly educated members that have recently joined their union. They see the potential for solidarity and a stronger union with these new members. Yes. (laughs)
2: Basically just yes. I mean, that's so obvious if you actually are seeing how these dynamics play out. That was Dan Vicente, who was of very notably of all the people elected who were on the reformer slate. He was elected straight from a shop floor in Pottstown, Pennsylvania. So he really is of the, you know, the blue collar level. Right. And, you know, often people are very perplexed by this when you ask them in these unions about whether there's a kind of conflict here. Of course there are different issues and priorities, but you'd be re- surprised by how much the language might be different in what grad students are fighting versus auto workers, but in fact it's it's often tears and par- permanent temps and you know and w- whether it's anything like that the boss having authority over flexible work, you know, these are things that actually are the same issue. Um and so I I totally I love Dan's quote about this. And also there's a moment in that piece where I stopped by the UAWD room that I mentioned, and there was a Harvard grad student and an auto worker talking about a, a resolution they wanted to put forward on the floor about pensions. And, of course, the Harvard grad student was like, well, this isn't really that relevant for me, but I'm really good at homework. And I figured out exactly the language that would like make this kind of the most convincing argument and also abide by kind of the the previous resolutions that have been getting through. And everyone just laughs when she says, I do my homework. And it's just like, yeah, that is the extent of tension, I would say. Um, I also think there's a really interesting thing afoot in UE, the Electrical Workers Union, which, you know, has kind of historically and to this day been one of the more left-wing unions in the United States. And, of course, it's really been decimated, both first with McCarthyism and sort of has down the line shrank in size, but, you know, I went out to Erie, Pennsylvania to there's a strike going on at the, this gigantic locomotive manufacturing plant there. And, you know, the workers there, similarly, the UE has a program like they're connecting graduate students who they also have been organizing at, at in great numbers. Um, I think relative to their size, it's the UE actually has more of an influx of grad students versus the UAW. And they're kind of building ties if, very intentionally there between those two sectors. It is a really interesting dynamic and also can often be quite funny. Uh, but, but yeah, to your point, Eric, um, what you said, I do think it's important to note, though, when people were arguing over, did grad students elect this reformer? You know, actually, one of the biggest grad locals in California for the UAW went against him. So it really was not just about sector. There's a political kind of thinking and sort of organization and rank and file kind of representation of the Reform Caucus that I think was very important versus people who were kind of backing the Administrative Caucus.
3: It's, it's it's worth noting that UE has doubled its membership in the last year, largely through the new organizing in higher ed. And see, I just think it's amazing that you have uh, graduate students at places like Stanford, you know, MIT, not places that one would associate uh, necessarily with radicalism. Choosing to go with UE because it's the most radical, the most bottom up, the most militant union, you know, it really is like uh, yeah, sea change, I think. Yeah.
1: Speaking of higher ed... This new organizing hasn't just happened within the UAW or the UE. It's happened across a number of unions and across the entire country. There were more academic strikes and new organizing drives in the last year than I think any of us could tick off off the top of our heads. The University of California engaged in a massive strike at the end of last year. Eric, you yourself were on strike at Rutgers for a bit. What do you think is going to come out of these organizing drives? This is something that we've covered on the dig significantly, In the past, it seems to, in large part, be a result of the proletarianization of higher education. Where is all of this going, the spreading union impulse within higher education?
3: I think the reality is higher education for a long time now, but particularly uh, in recent years, is just in a tremendous Crisis. And, and it really would be hard to overstate just how deep the crisis is. And and, and the immediate spur for so much of the unionization is really the background condition that there aren't jobs uh, at the end of the tunnel and in, in the way there used to be. And so then it becomes less and less tenable for people to feel like they should just accept anything that the administration will throw at them because, you know, down the line they might get a, a tenure track job. And that's just the conditions have changed so dramatically. In higher ed, that it's forcing people to treat these jobs as a source of their livelihood and to stop really taking everything. And so I think ultimately it's an open question what this means for the future of higher ed, because there's been significant concessions made, but ultimately there's really a contradiction between the neoliberal austerity model in higher ed and a robust trade unionism. So I think ultimately you're going to have very hard fights Um, over coming years, and it's going to require not just bottom-up organizing, but fighting to really transform the model of higher education, including through a dramatic refunding of these institutions in the public sector, because without more money, there is only so far that even the most militant uh, unions can go. So I think that part of the dynamic is going to be organizing more workers, uh, building this bottom-up power, and trying to put forward a different vision for what higher education should look like.
2: Yeah, I mean, I just agree with that. And I think we often see that the people at the heart of whether it's new unions in higher ed or on strike are also trying to think through these kind of broader questions because they, as, as we often talk about with, say, nurses or teachers, they see themselves as kind of the stewards, the canary in the coal mine, if you will, about this crisis in higher ed. And I think they're right to. You know, you see that these workers are often the ones who are saying, you know, hey, look, the budget here is going to building a new athletic facility or it's going to, you know, coaches salaries or, you know, these stupid buildings that are just, you know, decked out like we work or something. But meanwhile, there's just adjuncts are making poverty pay. Um, And so I think these workers are saying, you know, if we want higher ed to serve educational purposes rather than as an investment property and real estate uh, vehicle, we are the ones who can best do that and lead those fights. And there have been efforts. And, and I don't know if Eric is more familiar with them as far as creating coalitions that kind of like target that refunding at a federal level. I know the Rutgers unions have been very involved in sort of leading those efforts um, around the question of, you know, reallocating federal funds to universities that might put more emphasis on education and pay better um, and offer sort of more sustainable salaries But it's certainly the case that, yeah, the fight cannot be won one by one as far as this crisis. Um, And we're seeing, just to mention, it feels like we must mention this, what's going on at West Virginia University right now, just a decimation of a lot of the departments that are seen as sort of non-profitable, right? Even though this is, you know, this is a flagship public institution and they're eliminating entire departments forthright, you know, which then means hundreds of jobs being lost, you know. And that is what happens when there is there is just complete sort of political and and class control of the institutions of higher education in America. And that's a public institution. So that goes to show, I think, the depth of the crisis that now students in West Virginia, one of the poorest states in the country, their vision is has to have very limited horizons. They're not going to. Oh, you want to learn French? No, you don't get to because you are from West Virginia. You know, it's really it's it's devastating, I think, for working class people.
3: I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com.
0: You definitely know about The Dig since you're listening to this podcast, and you probably know about Jacobin, which helps put out The Dig, but you might not know about Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy. Capitalism is once again up for debate. Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy, is a scholarly journal produced by Jackpin Foundation that aims to do everything it can to promote and deepen this conversation. Its focus, as the title suggests, is to develop a theory and strategy with capitalism as its target, both in the North and in the global South. It is an ambitious agenda, but this is a time for thinking big. You can check out Catalyst's great essays, including contributions from Vivek Chipper, Cedric Johnson, Noam Chomsky, and Leah Ippi, and subscribe in print for just twenty dollars for an entire year by going to bit.ly/digcatalyst. That's bit.ly/digcatalyst, all lowercase.
1: Alex, you've covered the strikes that have gone on in Hollywood very closely. You spent some time in Los Angeles recently. These strikes are very interesting to observe. They're highly visible given the role that Hollywood plays in our culture. And there's obviously a lot of issues on the table in these strikes that are not just related to the entertainment industry, but that are Issues faced by workers of all types across the economy, for example, questions of the use of artificial intelligence and whether or not that will result in severe job loss for workers, even though the majority of the members of both SAG-AFTRA and the WGA are not people who are household names in America. You've also gotten to see household names speaking in very militant rhetoric about what the corporations that run Hollywood and the the studio heads are doing and the disdain that those studio heads have for working class people. On the other hand, it seems like these studios have really... Dug in their heels. We're several months into the WGA strike at this point. We just published a piece by you and Jacobin that seems to indicate that they're uh, not about to budge anytime soon. And so there's a real danger that these studios could be quite serious about waiting this thing out. They've been pretty open about their willingness to starve out these striking workers, s- spreading a talking point at one point that they hope that. Maybe some of the strikers would be more willing to come back to work once they start losing their homes and truly uh, cruel, staggeringly cruel orientation towards this strike. So what's the the state of this uh, strike and what's on the line for these two unions being able to uh, win after several weeks and several months out on strike?
2: Yeah, I mean, first to answer the first part of your question here about these are not issues that are just... For Hollywood or entertainment people. You know, one of the moments that really stuck with me from my time in Los Angeles was attending this early morning rally outside of a UPS hub near downtown Los Angeles. And Sean O'Brien was there to speak. You know, it was actually that day that then the news came out that shortly after that rally, um, UPS agreed to come back to the table. Um, So this was really part of the, the lead up to what we thought might be a national strike. And, you know, writers and actors were very well represented at that rally. And, you know, there were a lot of speeches from both SAG AFTRA and and WGA leadership about the commonalities between them. You know, one of the, one of SAG AFTRA's leaders, Ben Whitehair, was talking about, you know, we're fighting against, The sort of turning us into gig workers, we're fighting against technology that threatens labor and also threatens our privacy. We're fighting against, you know, the permanent use of temporary employees and the increasing use, like, loss of permanent jobs. Sound familiar? And of course, all the UPS teamsters in the audience said, yeah, because it's the same fight. Um, And so there's a lot of similarities. I mean, it was really striking as well, not to bring up yet another strike, but, you know, this was a strike in large part As you mentioned, about AI is a huge is a huge part, as well as sort of what the streaming model has done, which is is its own technology to kind of compensation for workers. And it was happening at the same time as another strike in Los Angeles, which was fifteen thousand Unite Here members, um, hotel workers, who also had problems with technology and whether it was you know the replacement of these strikers using apps, which was really dystopian or it's the use of labor saving technology in general so to sort of l- eliminate the amount of work that's needed and you know I think these are really we're sort of in this moment where technology the use of technology is a real question here where you know workers are not against technology but when it's deployed and developed in the hands of bosses there is a reason to be against it to get back to where i think things are going we published a piece today about the latest back and forth you know the the AMPTP which is the the organization that represents the major studios and bargains with these unions, finally came back to the table with the Writers Guild of America. Um, They offered counter proposals that, you know, according to the WGA um, and the limited details we have, seem to have a lot of loopholes. They are movement, right? But they're not the extent of what workers who have now sacrificed, you know, months on the picket lines are looking to to accept. So whether they're they're trying to hold out for even longer, you know, I think it's it's really a question, you know. So the AMPTP immediately leaked the highlights of their counterproposal to the media despite being the ones who were most kind of vehement about the two sides adhering to a media blackout. And reporting came out that actually they had planned to leak it even earlier and their hope was that They waited to see if the WGA leadership would actually just bring their counterproposal to the members to vote on. And to me, this it's it reflects a real cluelessness, which is actually kind of perplexing, Um, like they don't take the writers unity seriously. They don't think that writers actually are willing to keep holding out and they don't seem to understand how unions work, which is really, I think, interesting because these are guys who actually often come from the tech world where there aren't unions. And so I think there is a real like disconnect almost culturally here versus the old studio heads who are very familiar with these unions who have a long and storied history in Hollywood. Now these guys seem to think that they actually get to just dictate terms. As you said, that, that has offended even the most successful members of these unions, I think, and rightly so, because they, like workers elsewhere, see themselves as stewards of the art or product that they're creating and they see these guys as a threat to their ability to do that work and so i'm not in the prediction game but i think the fact that the studios have come back to the table and seem to be so confused and desperate that they're immediately leaking their proposals i think actually is a good thing but i i don't know what will come next
3: it's been so long since we've had really epic high-profile battles in the u.s that i think sometimes the stakes of these can get overlooked. Which is to say that I feel like a lot of unions are still not quite seeing the importance of going all out in solidarity with the strikes that are happening. And I, I don't want to overstate this because certainly on a local level, and in it, there's a lot of solidarity happening. A lot of unions are respecting the picket line. But the question of how you win a big profile strike does ultimately have to do as much with what the rest of labor will do oftentimes as with, with the union itself. And so this is true both for the Hollywood Writers um, and actors, but you know, at Starbucks and beyond, and so it does become incumbent, just in the same way we we're talking about democracy being a muscle that has to be sort of exercised to grow. The same is true with solidarity, and and so I, I think that one of the things that everyone who's not in the strike needs to start thinking about is what can we do to be at those picket lines? What can we do to help them escalate? Because in turn. So many people are watching the strike. So many of my like Normie high school friends are sending me pictures of their favorite celebrities at Picket Line. They're like, Eric, did you see, you know, parks and rec people on the Picket Line? And so the eyes of millions of Americans are on the strike. And We need to make it, you know, as certain as possible that uh, we can help them win. Because then in turn, if they do win, think about the, you know, the possibilities for every celebrity down the road when Starbucks, let's say Starbucks has a strike or boycott. You know, that solidarity can be reciprocated and the hype and the attention that celebrities uh, and that writers can bring is not a minor one. So, yeah, I hope we can see this moment.
2: Yeah, I just want to add to that that, you know, on the sort of smaller scale as far as within the industry, the solidarity really was key in that compared to the 2007-2008 writer's strike, which was the last nationwide one and went on for quite a while, though now this one has outdone it as far as the number of days you know, the Teamsters and members of IATSE, which are the two below the line worker unions in the industry, below the line being the people who don't get billing, you know, on the posters for a movie, you know, the the grips and electricians and hair and makeup, all those people who really do the, the manual work of film and TV, they didn't really respect the picket lines. There weren't those ties and things have changed, you know, not that there was 100 percent respecting of picket lines when it was just the writers on strike. But in fact, it was a, it was a sea change. You know, In part, the leadership of this woman, Lindsay Doherty, who heads the, um, the Teamsters Local for Hollywood workers, she sort of emphasized that they were not going to cross the picket lines. And you know, writers, not to disrespect them, I'm one myself, don't have a lot of weight to throw around. You, know, you can't really shut down production if you're just a writer. But if the Teamsters and the IATSE members are not going to cross your picket line, Then you immediately shut it down. And that largely happened in a way that I think both the writers and the studios were not expecting. And it really did change the kind of playing field for these workers. Anecdotally, it was really interesting on these picket lines, the number of writers and actors who are, like, gung-ho excited to now, like, support other strikes and workers. You know, I was speaking to this one member of SAG, Vanessa Chester, who has been an actor since she was a child, she was in Lost World, Jurassic Park, among other things. And she was saying, we're a labor pool. We just happen to be performers. You know, We're here with the hotel employees, UPS workers, railroad workers, WGA, women in the exotic dancing industry, referencing you know the strippers union that formed in Los Angeles. And we're saying, I don't know exactly what your struggle is, but I know someone's not treating you as well as they should. How about as we're walking, tell me about what's going on so I can show up for you. It's not I'm getting exploited, so you should be too. It's you're getting exploited. Tell me what's going on so I can help make sure it doesn't happen anymore. I'm ready to go to bat for everyone. And so I really think it's true that it might be easy or fun to dismiss, you know, celebrities as like workers or that we need to care versus people who are suffering more. And putting aside that most of these members are, in fact, working class, kind of like low wage people with second and third jobs, It actually matters that we have these, you know, this is a real strength of the Hollywood unions that they have managed to take rich and famous people and make them proud union militants. Um, And so I, I totally agree with Eric that it's important that they actually win at this table.
1: Let's talk about two other campaigns with name brand corporations that have grabbed lots of headlines in the last year or two, Starbucks and Amazon, both of them seemed like huge breakthroughs when workers first started organizing at both of the respective companies. Both of them have been subject to wildly flagrant union busting by their corporate heads, but both of them seem to be hitting walls in some ways because of the limitations of U.S. labor law and potentially because of, certainly in the case of Amazon, Conflict that has broken out within the unions themselves. So let's start with Starbucks, Eric. What is going on with Starbucks? The the number of stores that have unionized is actually quite high at this point. uh, But no one has negotiated a first union contract yet, not through the fault of the union, but because it is possible under U.S. labor law for a corporation to drag things out for on and on and on they have yet to make that breakthrough into actually winning uh, first contracts. So is that going to change anytime soon? What would it take for that to change?
3: I think the first thing that has to be said is how successful the Starbucks Workers United effort has been, which is to say that organizing well over 300 stores and wresting important material concessions from one of the biggest corporations in the world, you know, Starbucks um, has the six largest workforce in the US and private sector, you know, this is a major accomplishment. And so so I don't think we should start with the negative. It's it's inspired probably more than anything else, the new unionization wave in other industries, you know, people just see Starbucks, they always bring it up when you talk to workers in any industry, trying to unionize, they say, well, we saw Starbucks, we can do it too. So the overall story, I think is actually despite the absence of a first contract, a positive one. And I just actually don't think that it's a realistic timeline to think that within you know, two years of the first union drive at a corporation like Starbucks, just the scope and size of it, that you would win a first contract given how broken US labor lies. Again, as I mentioned before, it took years and decades to organize auto and steel. And I think that you probably need to have a similar timeline in your head when you're thinking about what it's going to take to organize Starbucks and Amazon. So I, I actually push back against this idea that because they haven't won a first contract yet, this somehow shows an inherent limitation. In the type of unionizing they're doing, because no one else has an answer for how to organize these mega corporations. It's just the reality is when you're up against a really, really big enemy with a ton of different workplaces, it takes a while. So, that being said, it's true that the momentum that you saw in early 2022 after Buffalo sort of inspired everything has dropped, but you still see every week, every week, you see new stores. Are unionizing. And it's pretty remarkable if you think about it, given the just uh, scorched earth offensive of the you know Starbucks apparatus and Howard Schultz to really just terrorize their workers. You, you know, I, it would be we could spend a whole episode just talking about the sheer amount of pain and suffering and, and tension and anxiety that corporate. Uh, Starbucks and their union-busting lackeys have inflicted on just like very idealistic, young, mostly young, not just workers trying to just have a voice at work. The the level of just sheer um, horribleness, for lack of a better word, should be underscored. And I think that we need to keep on underscoring it if we're going to help the Starbucks workers win, because a big part of helping them win is going to be not just what they are doing at the store-by-store level but in starting to organize a broader community and customer support to put leverage on Starbucks. And Starbucks is vulnerable because it has this nominally liberal or progressive brand that it cares very deeply about. And so one of the exciting developments in just the last couple of weeks was that at Cornell University, students have been organizing for months, doing occupations and sit-ins and a lot of direct action to push Starbucks off campus in response to the illegal union busting in Ithaca. Uh, which was a hotbed of the unionization effort. Starbucks responded by illegally closing all of the stores. And the students protested, and they succeeded in convincing Cornell to drop its contract with Starbucks. And now there's a national call, I believe this week, and uh, efforts to now try to replicate this type of effort on colleges across the campus. So I think this points to a way forward which is to say that workers are going to keep on organizing, but they're going to need the broader support of not just customers and students, but really the broader labor movement. And I think we have to say that, again, the labor movement as a whole, I don't think has been up to the task yet of seizing this moment and understanding that the Starbucks campaign in particular has stakes well beyond Starbucks because if they are able, if the CEOs are able to smash and stop the momentum completely and prevent workers from ever getting a first contract – that's going to send real chilling effects through the rest of the working class. And the type of union busting techniques that Starbucks has really put to the fore, for instance, denying union uh, unionized shops um, the same raises and benefits as then they give to the rest of the company. These tactics are being replicated very quickly throughout the rest of the U.S. economy. So the stakes of Starbucks are very high for labor as a whole, for the working class as a whole. And I think that the boycotts and the broader solidarity effort, again, are going to be absolutely essential for the Starbucks workers to win.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I basically just agree with what Eric said. I think it's incredibly short-sighted and almost like hard to believe when people don't understand the stakes of particularly high-profile fights, you know, Starbucks being the, the, the obvious one, I think probably the most important one. But also, again, going back to the Hollywood workers, you know, we we in the labor movement talk about sort of contagion and spread as far as, like, people win and try to win when they see others win, right? And, you know, there's this sense that your your horizon and vision and poss- sense of possibilities get increased when you see other workers going out and winning – And it's very true that the opposite is the case. You know, I mean, we all talk about PATCO for a reason. This is when federal air traffic controllers go on strike and then are permanently replaced and fired and lose that strike. And permanent replacement becomes the mode of operating for every strike going forward. And also it leads to decades. You know, it's not the only thing, but kind of signals decades of decline. For the U.S. labor movement. And so I think it's a really high stakes game that every worker plays here as far as like, you know, you're you're wanting to improve your working conditions, but you know that it's going to have an effect on other workers, whether you win or not. And so I think that sense of just acknowledging reality that, in fact, whether you like it or not, we are all in this together is a realization that every union you know, should have had yesterday, but certainly needs to have now.
1: What about Amazon? Alex, you've covered Amazon very closely. You're working on a documentary about the organizing drive there. Similar to Starbucks, incredibly flagrant union busing that's being carried out there. The union has hit a wall uh, in many ways, it seems. Amazon workers, unlike Starbucks workers, are engaged in their union drives through an independent union uh, rather than an established union which is, is full of all kinds of possibilities, but it also makes life uh, very difficult when you have to figure out how to deal with all of these legal challenges and all these union busting tactics, and you're doing so uh, largely on your own. Is there any hope for Amazon workers breaking through recently? Is there any way that labor law will help them get out of the mess that they are currently in and and at least win the first contract at JFK 8, the one Amazon facility that has unionized thus far?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, again, not to be a broken record, but like, as Eric said, we have to think on timelines that are, you know, years here. You know, I, I've said before that I remember being at a Labor Notes conference, I guess, five years ago or something, and the, and some young workers were really excited about the idea of of helping organize Amazon And people thought that was ridiculous, right? And it was very clear to me that they were going to try it anyway. And so it took several years for any of those efforts to go public. And I think similarly, you know, as much as we draw a parallel, like Amazon and Starbucks are the two most high-profile new organizing drives, they're also very different companies. We're talking about thousands of workers in one workplace at an Amazon warehouse versus, you know, 20 to 30 at a Starbucks. That is a lot harder of a task And also, Amazon is about as powerful as it gets, right? Not that Starbucks isn't, but Amazon, because it operates kind of on the real estate level and so geographically and at such a scale, you know, its it's lobbying and organizational efforts are extremely well developed. And also, it's true that the ALU, the Amazon Labor Union, is the only one that has won a NLRB election, and that was at JFK 8. But there are also many other efforts going on um, at Amazon warehouses. I mean, the the first NLRB election petition that lost was at the Bessemer, Alabama warehouse where RWDSU, an, an established union, was trying to organize that. There are also minority union efforts in a number of the delivery centers. You know, there's another independent union effort that I've written about in the South. And so I just think we have to be clear that, you know, when I think about Amazon, you really have to sort of envision the entire country dotted with these facilities. And there are varying stages of effort at every one at this point. And so I think that is a perspective to keep in mind when we put all the attention on just JFK. 8. Um, that said, I mean, you, you sort of nailed it in the, the start of the question itself, which is that the employer intransigence. And the difficulty, the size and scale and high turnover presents for organizing an Amazon warehouse creates immense pressure on the workers, right, in the union. You're getting caged in, basically. You know, the employer won't budge. They're violating your rights. The NLRB might be as good as it's ever been, but still can't stop Amazon from doing what it's doing. It can't force them to negotiate a contract. I mean, Amazon has the money to just take fines, it's really a difficult situation. And so those things are still wending their way through the courts, even as the NLRB keeps finding in the ALU's favor, you know, at every turn. And so the question becomes, Okay, you can't, you sort of aren't able to kind of go externally and win other elections. So how do you organize the workers themselves at the shop floor level, shift by shift, you know, department by department to actually be able to have a fighting force that could then extrajudicially, not through the courts, force Amazon to whether bargain a first contract or otherwise grant concessions in a way to try to stave off a contract, accept raises and accept better working conditions um, as the cost of them doing business with you as organized workers. And that is an open question, I think, but it's very much in flux. It is not surprising that, you know, the ALU has been unable thus far to win other NLRB elections because what was shocking was that they won one, that I actually... Still can't believe any of them have organized a Amazon warehouse. It felt like such a far-fetched, adventurous dream at that Labor Notes conference a few years ago. And so I think, again, we're seeing at a, a timeline that maybe people are not used to seeing because they're used to following elected officials' timelines in you know, a few months or a year. That is not the scale that one will have to think of when we think about organizing a company like Amazon.
1: We've been talking about a number of unions that are under reform leadership that are taking a more democratic and militant approach to their unionism, as well as some of the new experiments that have kicked off among workers previously thought unorganizable or using tactics uh, that previously were not much used by the labor movement, and All of this has happened at the same time, and perhaps not coincidentally, as the organization Labor Notes has grown massively. The conference last year in Chicago that happens every two years was massive, attended by over 4,000 people. And all of the most exciting currents in the labor movement were there. The kind of militant democratic unionism that they have long fought for is clearly ascended in at least some wings of the American labor movement. Labor Notes style union leadership have taken over an increasing number of unions, the UAW, which we already mentioned, playing in a key role in UPS, many other unions. Eric, can you talk about the impact that labor notes has had on this moment in the labor movement?
3: It's really remarkable, especially if you know the history of labor notes. It's really going back to the 70s as a pretty embattled, relatively small core of leftists and, you know, allied union reformers trying desperately to reform an extremely bureaucratic labor movement. And, and so it's gone from a place of just really being forced out of the labor movement as a whole to playing a, I, you know, I wouldn't say central, unfortunately, we're not yet at that stage, but like a very major role in the overall unionization uptick that we're living in and if you just ask you know workers at Starbucks or at Amazon or at so many of the different recent unionization drives or if you just ask the workers who are trying to reform their unions over and over again I, what i hear is uh, as their reference point for what they're reading what the conferences are going what workshops they're going to i hear two things i hear jane McAlevey, to her credit i think has also played a big role in sort of helping bring back a more militant unionism for this new generation but in particular labor notes has just cohered the movement wing of the labor movement and if you were at the last conferences you know there was a, there was a sense of vitality and excitement that You certainly don't get if you go to your average union convention. And I think that the overall stakes have been laid out already, so I don't want to belabor the point. But the reality is most unions are still missing the moment. Despite extremely favorable conditions for turning things around, there is just decades of inertia, decades of losing... And it's not that most unions are doing bad things. I think actually most unions like are still on the whole good and are, like, uh good things to have, even the bureaucratic one for their workers. But the potentiality for a revived labor movement is essentially what uh, Labor Nuts is pushing for the bottom up democratic unionism. And I think that we're seeing in UAW uh, in particular, where a lot of Labor Nuts folks uh, are playing a role in the new UAWD and the reform efforts in particular how much Labor Notes has become, at least in certain unions, a central part of the conversation. Um, And it's really just hard to imagine this being the case even 10 years ago. So what we're seeing is truly a game changer in that sense.
2: Yeah, I mean, just to go off of Eric's point, you know, Labor Notes is both a publication and also like a movement organizing institution. They hold organizing trainings they how to, you know, enforce your contract, kind of the boring, tedious stuff that is what building workplace power looks like. And it's like they've been seeding this for a long time. And suddenly, you know, they hold trainings and it's it's overflowing, right? And and that's sort of to kind of respond to the moment, you need that. You need actually the rank and file people on the shop floor to be the ones that feel competent and capable and empowered to, you know, respond to to the boss's encroachment both at the micro level, as well as to push for kind of broader changes and and raise awareness about certain things that are going on, whether it's flexibilization of workers, you know, corporate consolidation and the removal of control from the shop floor, sort of these trends that we're seeing across industries and across the country. It starts with the workers actually being able to kind of respond agilely to that. And that can't happen without kind of that rank and file kind of empowerment or organization and yeah, I mean, there is, it's true. I also hear the Jane McAlevey thing, you know, people read No Shortcuts like it's the Bible. And and it's a good, jump. it is the jumping off point and it's really remarkable. Um, and then la- they go to a labor notes training, right? This is, not everyone, of course, but like this is often the steps you hear. I totally agree that it's, it's really remarkable. You know, the labor notes slogan is we're putting the movement back in the labor movement And it was often a joke, you know, that, well, when, you know, there, it's not happening, you know, I wish it was, but like, when is the labor movement going to start moving? I mean, now, as we've just laid out for the past hour, you know, it's almost impossible to keep track of the movement. And often when you sort of trace the individual people at the center of new organizing campaigns or reform efforts, it's true that often you're going to find yourself at a labor notes training.
1: It's a real testament to the radicals who started the organization in the 1970s, who really kept that vision and that politics, and they stayed on that path for half a century. And it has now paid off in enormous ways. If you were at the Labor Notes Conference last year, you could see that. You could feel that 4,000-plus people there representing all kinds of wings of the labor movement where things are moving. On the flip side, there's what Eric just mentioned, which is that most unions still are stuck in a kind of old way of approaching, organizing, approaching the crisis moment that we find ourselves in. The union researcher Chris Boner wrote several pieces for Jacobin where he looked at the finances of many of the top unions and found that despite the fact that as we mentioned at the outset of this conversation that unions are still incredibly weak that the percentage of the u.s workforce that is unionized is at its lowest level in many decades union finances are actually doing quite well that many unions are quite flush with cash they've clearly made wise investments with their members dues and they're not on the brink of financial collapse far from it which begs the question Why are these unions not using those financial resources to really go all in on this moment and invest in new organizing drives, in bold organizing experiments? Uh, Currently, Eric, it seems like that is not happening.
3: Yeah, I think, to be honest, it drives me crazy. The thing that makes me most crazy is the discrepancy between the resources that unions have and what is being done. It's not that there's nothing being done, but essentially most unions are doing what they were doing before the pandemic, before the uptick, which is relatively low scale, low resourced uh, unionization. And so when you talk to staff organizers who are really, you know, some of the heroes of the labor movement, they're they're just overwhelmed. The the amount of resources being given to new organizing in particular is just uh, significantly lower than it was even 10 years ago. You know, 10 years ago is not, you know, a dramatic boost in uh, new organizing, but there has been a relative decline in money going to new organizing. The number of staff of new organizers has declined over the last 10 years, even as the money has gone up. So why is this the case? I think there's a few things. Part of it is that there is a real danger uh, for certain layers of the union officialdom that bringing in new workers will upset the routines and positions that they have it's much easier just to stay in office and to keep things going with their um, day-to-day business uh, rather than take real risks and it is a real risk to try to use money to take on these big corporations i, I you know this is maybe uh, a point that we already made but it's worth it's worth underscoring here to put this money towards new organizing is like not at all a surefire bet that you're gonna win given how stacked labor laws against unions and just how egregious the union busting is from these corporations, it's understandable that a lot of union leaders would say, well, I'm not willing to take that risk. And so it really becomes incumbent then, as we mentioned, on the workers themselves sort of pushing uh, for new types of leaderships with more leftist politics, with more risk taking sensibilities to move labor in another direction. I don't think that we are going to just convince most existing labor leaders to take that leap because it is a big leap and and there is no guarantee of success. But we can say conversely that if labor continues to basically do what it's been doing, the only possible result will be continued decline.
1: Part of the success of a project like Labor Notes seems to be also a willingness on the part of some within the labor movement to try New approaches to organizing, and there have been a number of exciting projects that have come out of the left and of the left wing of the labor movement, thinking, for example, about the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, uh, which is a project between the Democratic Socialists of America and U.E., that has responded to the crisis that many workers have found themselves in during the pandemic and has tried to establish a new model for worker organizing for the 21st century. Eric, you're working on a book that takes stock of some of these models that have been tried for the first time in recent years. Can you talk about what your argument is in that book, what distributed organizing is and what it looks like and how it could have the potential to transform the labor movement, particularly if some of these experiments that we have seen thus far are scaled up by unions and other kinds of left-wing groups?
3: Sure. For, For the last three decades or more, there's been a debate in the labor movement about the relative importance of staff and resources versus uh, more worker-led efforts. And so my book is is sort of reopening this debate, but looking at the really rich experience we've had over the last few years. And I think that the core argument and the really uh, core evidence that we've seen from the recent experience is that only worker-led unionism has the possibility to win at scale. That traditional, by which I mean more staff-intensive unionism, can win... Uh, battles and often does and is doing you know amazing work in many places. So I don't really mean to denigrate it. But because it's so costly, uh, because it just literally takes so much resources to win in the way that unions as a whole are organizing today, we need to move towards more worker led, worker driven models because there's just no possibility to win at scale otherwise. And so let me try to specify that a little bit more. You can compare the dynamics today to the way they were in the 1930s in which actually the question of scale was somewhat less important because unions uh, and organizers could focus on a major plant like River Rouge uh, auto plant in Detroit. You could focus on U.S. steel. You're talking about plants of tens of thousands of workers in which there's a just tremendous concentration, both of numbers of workers and of their economic centrality. What you've had since the decline of Fordism all across the U.S. is basically the decentralization of industry so that you have lots and lots of scattered establishments and becomes much harder than to organize just by focusing on this or that strategically important workplace. And that becomes essentially a inherent barrier to the type of unionism that most unions are practicing today. We have actually good estimates of how much it costs to organize an average worker in the private sector. It's about $4,000 today to organize one new worker in the private sector. And so while we were talking before about Unions need to use the uh, resources they have towards new organizing. That's true. But even if all of the resources, we're talking about $14 in liquid assets, according to Boner, even if all of those were put towards new organizing, that would still be actually a relatively minor dent in union density. So you need to be able to move towards new models that instead of having to have a staff organizer intensively walk workers through the process and then have a lot of researchers and negotiators, paid staff, driving the process forward, oftentimes in conjunction with workers, but still very much a central part. These new models are giving workers the tools and resources for themselves to lead these drives. So we're talking about the Starbucks Workers United campaign, the efforts of the News Guild, which has a member organizing program in which very explicitly, the idea is that every single thing that uh, staff organizers do should be taught to workers so that workers can then teach those skills to their coworkers, implement them in action, and it becomes a real movement um, dynamic. I think the best term we could use to describe this type of unionism is just movement unionism because it gets at that worker-to-worker dynamic. We've seen that in higher ed. That's been the mode of organizing in the tremendous grad student efforts. And then we also see it, as you mentioned, in the type of model of EWOC, Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, in which Any worker across the country can call, uh, sign up on a form online, and within 48 hours is going to get a call back and get help in organizing their workplace. And it's going to be on them to do it, but we'll give them the tools and the resources and the organizing know-how so that they can take the initiative. And that's so crucial because only through these types of models can you try to start organizing millions of workers and not just thousands of workers. And so that requires uh, lots of mass trainings. It requires teaching people the basic methods that staff organizers uh, have been doing. And so I think actually another form that we've seen this take is the trainings of Organizing for Power and the writings of Jane McLeavy that have directly passed on the lessons of tried and true organizing, which I think overall still remain as relevant as ever to tens of thousands of workers who then use these to organize their workplaces. And so we're seeing then that the types of models of the past are getting superseded by a more worker-driven dynamic. And I think that's made possible by two new factors that meant that the potentiality for worker-to-worker organizing are much higher. So one is the radicalization of young workers. You know, this has been a thread in the conversation so far where millennials and Gen Z are just overwhelmingly supportive of unions. And a lot of the most dynamic union drives in recent years have been led by young workers. So this is a new factor Um, Because there is just a a supply of workers willing to self-organize, do things like initiating a drive, doing things like training other workers and organizing methods, taking decisive say over campaign strategy. That's new. That's that's that goes even farther beyond than the kind of a lot of the best rank-and-file intensive organizing up until recently. So you have, on the one hand, young workers taking the lead, and then you do have the rise in digital technologies, which lowers organizing costs pretty dramatically. If you don't have to have an in-person conference, but you can have a Zoom call, if you can have a viral Facebook page that uh, helps organize a statewide strike in a place like West Virginia or Arizona, this gives just a new amount of leverage for rank and file workers to not have to depend to the same extent on official union structures. My argument here isn't that like, resources don't matter. I think all of the conversation we've had up until now shows that union resources do matter and we need unions to make a turn to be able to scale up these type of efforts. But fortunately now, because of the new conditions we're in, uh, there's possibilities for organizing worker-to-worker unionism at scale. And I think it's only through that that we're going to be able to organize the Amazons, the Starbucks. Because just think about it, Starbucks has 6,000 plus workplaces. Amazon has 1,000 plus workplaces. In order to get a majority of these workplaces cohered and organized, you just can't do that with a staff-driven model. And so thinking through and scaling up these efforts, I think, is going to be the way forward.
1: Throughout this conversation, I've been emphasizing keeping a sober outlook on the U.S. labor movement, but things have often felt quite bleak for the reborn U.S. left since the last Bernie campaign, and few of us have needed reminders of how sober we should be about the left's prospects. But I think that despite the challenges faced by the headline-grabbing campaigns that we've talked about, as well as other developments like the election of former rank-and-file public school teacher Brandon Johnson to the mayor's office in Chicago, we have seen very important breakthroughs in the labor movement. And it is a time of immense opportunity for workers and unions, probably the most immense opportunities of any in our lifetimes.
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree. I often say that you know, when the Sanders campaign collapsed in 2020, there was a lot of sort of hot takes and columns and and speculation like the left is in disarray. No one knows what's going on. It's collapsed. And that was true if you just look at electoral politics or the Internet and and sort of like what people are doing as posters. But as someone who's very ensconced in the labor movement, I was like, I don't see that at all. People are going and, and committing themselves to the labor movement both sort of people who were already kind of formed socialists are devoting themselves, whether it's new organizing or staff organizing for a union or otherwise kind of union work, or it's young people who had never heard class politics laid out for them before actually taking Sanders' message that, you know, power happens in the workplace and that the working class needs to be organized and hearing about unions from him and saying, okay, well, I guess that's what I'm going to go do now. I mean, it's it sounds, you know, sort of, like a simplification, but that really is when you talk to a lot of people, whether they're Starbucks, Amazon, reformers in the UAW, Teamsters, you know, they'll say, yeah, it was Sanders was kind of my starting point. Um, that hit me. And I realized, oh, okay, well, if Sanders is not going to be present, I believe that this is where I can actually make a change. And so I was, I kept thinking, like, no, we're going to see it in a few years, but the left seems, you know, at least the labor left is bigger than ever and is extremely unified and, like, making serious gains. I mean, I am the biggest pessimist. I always, as I said from the start, I was like, well, it's born out of desperation. But I often find myself thinking, like, well, you know, DSA, for example, is doing exactly what I think it should be doing, you know, as far as its labor movement efforts. And I feel that way about so many other unions and types of work. And it's just, unfortunately, we're starting at such a bottom that it's still, you know, minuscule compared to what we need. But I, to me, it's it's totally right. It checks every box of, you know, the trajectory that I would want as far as, you know, rank and file willingness to fight and and go on the offensive and hope and influx of younger workers. All of these things, a focus on kind of racial and sexist discrimination, you know, which is often kind of at the core of what workers then start organizing around broader issues from. You know, it's often in the United States that, Actually, the workplace is racist or the workplace, you know, there is harassment going on Um, and there's a seriousness to people to responding to that and actually taking those smaller issues that might happen, whether it's, you know, one manager is docking your pay because you're five minutes late, you know, once a month or it's something more serious and it is really starting to snowball into something bigger. And so that is my... I think my hope is like well earned because I'm rarely hopeful um, that, you know, it, it just does take time, though. And so it's not going to happen on the cycle of, you know, what a Sanders' presidential election campaign happened, which, you know, over the course of a year. Um, but we are seeing the results of that.
3: Yeah, I agree entirely with Alex. And, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to spend the most of my days uh, over the last few months just interviewing workers who've been involved in unionization efforts. And you know, I've told you this before, Mike, but it just makes my day every day like way more pleasant because I spend a bunch of time talking to really heroic individuals who've just like risked uh, so much uh, in a very beautiful way to build something bigger. And so, just just yesterday, to give you one example, I did an interview with Salwa Mogadedi, who is a Starbucks worker in Vernon, uh, Connecticut, who literally in January 2022. Uh, was diagnosed with uh, stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma and proceeds immediately to spend the next six months organizing her store, going from chemo th- sessions to the spending the next three days after she gets chemo saying that the steroids helped her give energy for the next three days to organize all of her coworkers. And so that type of really heroism is just being replicated in a very granular sense that a lot of people don't always see all across the country. And that's really what is building uh, this moment and I, I'd be hard-pressed to actually identify any other movement at this moment that there is such dynamism and hope and militancy. And there's just a broader consequence then of this, which is that for the first time in certainly generations, certainly in my lifetime, labor is sexy. Um, and even the left, up until pretty recently, wasn't like labor-pilled, for lack of a better term. You know, I think labor and unions were seen as kind of a little bit stodgy, you know, some people say unions are good or like one of many good things, but it wasn't really like a focus per se on trying to rebuild the labor movement. There wasn't a sense that rebuilding the labor movement is at the center of any project that could succeed in combating climate disaster, in winning racial, gender justice, whatever, uh, whatever the issue is combating economic inequality, saving democracy in the United States, the sense that labor was going to be and had to be central to that was really actually marginal. And what we're seeing now, and it's one of the reasons I'm hopeful, is that there is a much deeper and more wide perception that without a revived labor movement, we are fucked, uh, for lack of a better term. But that in turn, the prospects are there for making a very serious and concerted and large scale turn towards new organizing, towards strikes, towards reforming unions that can literally change the world. And so, yeah, I'm hopeful. We don't know the way the struggle is going to go. There are going to be ups and downs, but I don't think you're going to be able to put the genie back in the bottle. I think that the labor contagion is so widespread at this point that even if the momentum dies down, there's going to be thousands and tens of thousands of workers who are going to spend the rest of their lives trying to rebuild worker power from the bottom up. And that's, I think, going to be the most hopeful dynamic in U.S. politics.
1: Alex and Eric, thank you very much.
3: Thanks so much for having us, Micah. That was really fun.
0: Alex Press is a Jacobin staff writer who covers the American labor movement. Eric Blanc is a professor of labor studies at Rutgers University. He's the author of Red State Revolt, The Teacher's Strike Wave, and Working Class Politics. And he's currently at work on We Are the Union how worker-to-worker organizing can transform America. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, the collisions between individual workmen and individual bourgeois take more and more the character of collisions between two classes. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tumus Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Thea Rio Franco and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at the Day Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but what really and truly does that is you telling your friends about the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge.